Uh, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Catalyst. Uh, my name is JR. I'm the teaching pastor here. And as we're getting this, uh, started this morning, I wanted to tell you the story of Philomena Lee. Uh, Philomena Lee was a woman born and raised in Ireland. And when she was 19 years old, uh, she discovered that she was pregnant. Uh, now, she was very sheltered. Her parents were extremely religious, and they had never given her any kind of sex education, so she didn't, you know, she didn't know how that happened. And uh, when her parents found out that she was pregnant, they put her in a convent, sort of locked her away as, uh, again, something that, that happened quite often with these kinds of families. And uh, she gave birth in the convent under the watch of these nuns. Uh, these nuns then adopted her son out to a family that Philomena never met, and that was the last time she ever saw her son. Now, fast forward to 2003. Philomena Lee is 70 years old, and at Christmas one year, she breaks down sobbing, remembering this lost son of hers. And her, she, she had, had since then married and, and had other children and had never told any of them this secret that she had carried all of these years. And so her daughter uh, you know, sat down with her and asked her why she was crying, and, and Philomena confessed that somewhere out in the world there was this missing son that she had never met, that she didn't know what happened to him, what had become of him. The daughter reached out to a prominent journalist in Britain, and he was so captivated by this case that he agreed to help Philomena find her missing son. So they began a journey together. They went to the convent, and they were able to receive no answers. They said that the nun who was in charge of things back then was, was long dead and, and, and sorry they couldn't help. But they kept digging, and they finally were able to find out that Philomena's son was adopted by American parents. So they flew over to the United States, and they found out that he actually worked in uh, politics in Washington, D.C. He was part of the Reagan administration, all this stuff, and he, he had died in 1993. They also found out that three separate times he had come back to that convent trying to find information about his birth mother. And three separate times they had lied to him and said they didn't have any of those records and they couldn't help him. Now I want to pause Philomena's story there and just ask what you would do if you were her in that situation. I mean, I would be, of course, devastated. I would be furious. I'd feel betrayed. And, and I would want justice. But honestly, what does justice look like for Philomena Lee? What does justice look like when her son has been dead for 10 years? What does justice look like when the nun who is in charge of things is, has been dead for some time? What does justice really look like for her? I tell you this story this morning because we're going to be talking about forgiveness today. And more than just about any other human alive, Philomena Lee has taught me what forgiveness looks like. See, we think that forgiveness looks like reconciliation, that uh, to forgive someone means to make everything okay with them, right? To restore a relationship with them. That forgiveness is primarily an external movement, that it's, it's, it's a, like a synonym for reconciliation, but Philomena's story pushes on that. It says maybe, that's not, maybe it's not so simple. Because sometimes when someone has hurt you, they're unwilling to reconcile with you. Then what do you do? Sometimes, like in Philomena's case, the person who hurt you is unable to reconcile, either because uh, they're gone or, or because of circumstances. Sometimes it's even unsafe 
for you to reconcile with the person who hurt you because they haven't changed and to go back into any kind of a relationship with them would expose you to all kinds of future abuses and harms at their hands. So while obviously in an ideal world, reconciliation is the goal, if forgiveness and reconciliation are the same thing, then that means there's lots of times when we can't forgive someone. And if that's the case, that's not very good news because what it means is that we are condemned for the rest of our lives to live in a world that is defined by what they did to us. And that's not good news. To be constantly haunted by them, by what they did to us, to not be able to move on and to move forward until uh, they pursue reconciliation with us. I mean, that, that, that's, that's not sufficient. And so today, we're going to talk about what forgiveness really is, because it's not that. The good news of forgiveness is that when we choose to forgive, we, we create a new reality, a new world of possibility. Forgiveness is about not living in the world defined by what they did to us, but rather choosing to live in this new world that is free from what they did to us, that enables us to be a people who speaks peace and love and forgiveness into the world, even to the people who have wronged us, even when they're unwilling or unable to reconcile with us. And all of that is grounded in the good news that God has forgiven us. And God's forgiveness of us is what frees us to forgive other people, what frees us to live as a people on God's terms, not on the terms of the people who hurt us. So we're going to begin this morning by celebrating this God and specifically by celebrating this God's forgiveness and forgiving work towards us. So I'd like to invite you to stand with me as we begin this morning and celebrate the God who gives us grace and who forgives. So this is, that was the, I love, I love that bumper. It's, it's sad that it's the last week we're going to get to sing along to the Atari's cover of Boys of Summer. But this is the last week of our summer series, the way, way back. Uh, hopefully that has conjured to mind summer road trips. Uh, hopefully, I know some of you took some road trips this summer. Uh, throughout this series, we have been in the book of Genesis, looking at the patriarchs and matriarchs of our faith. So we met Abram and Sarah. We met uh, Isaac and Rebekah. We spent some time with Jacob and his whole giant uh, dysfunctional family. And the last three weeks, we have been in the story of Joseph. Uh, and so if you have not been here with us, I'll get you caught up real quick because uh, it's all coming to a head today. Uh, the story of Joseph began when Joseph was a kid and God gave him a dream, a dream that one day he would rule over his father and his brothers. And this was a, this was a threat to the patriarchal culture that they lived in. The youngest son never ruled over anything. And so we saw how Joseph's brothers and his father resisted the dream that God gave to Joseph. And that first week it ended with Joseph in a pit being sold into slavery and being taken to Egypt in chains. And we wondered, is it possible that human sin could stop God's dream? That was the question that the story of Joseph begged with Joseph in chains being dragged to Egypt. But then last week, if you were here, Debbie uh, took us through the middle part of Joseph's life with all of the ups and downs, him getting promoted to head slave in Potiphar's house and then being falsely accused and ending up in prison for who knows how many years. And then while he was in prison, continuing to interpret dreams, to be faithful to God and what God had called him to do, and yet still failing again and again and again to make any progress being forgotten, left alone to rot in prison, until Pharaoh had a dream that no one could interpret. And Pharaoh's dream uh, brought Joseph into Pharaoh's court. 
and Joseph was able to interpret the dream correctly, that Egypt was going to have seven years of bountiful harvests, plentiful crops, but it was going to be followed by seven years of intense, severe famine. So at the end of last week, we saw that Joseph recommended that Pharaoh find someone to administrate famine preparation. That during the seven years of plenty, this person would build storehouses and apportion some of the excess crops so that Egypt would be able to weather the famine when it came. And Pharaoh thought this was such a good idea, he appointed Joseph to do it. So this young boy who had had a dream from God that one day he would rule over everyone, who was faithful to this God through all of the ups and downs of his life, ended last week the second most powerful person in the world, second only to Pharaoh himself. And we saw that God is faithful. And we saw how Joseph chose to look for God's faithfulness. This week, we're going to pick up kind of where we left off. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to Genesis chapter 45. I'm going to be reading on my phone this morning, so you can do that or read along, uh, read along up here. I'll get you caught up to where we are in the story. So again, the famine hit just like God said it would. After seven years of plenty in which Egypt prepared and prepared and prepared, famine struck the whole uh, ancient Near East. And the only place in the world that had food was Egypt because of Joseph's preparation. So word got out, as word tends to do when there's food involved, and people from all over the region came to Egypt to get food, including the sons of Jacob, Joseph's brothers, the ones who had thrown him in a pit and faked his death and sold him into slavery. And again, Joseph is the one in charge of deciding who gets food and how much. So his brothers all show up and they're announced, these are the sons of Jesse, or uh, sorry, sons of Jacob. And Joseph goes, the, those guys? Now, they don't recognize him because, you know, they think he's, you know, long dead or a slave or something like that. They certainly don't expect him to be the most, second most powerful person in the world. And he's, I'm sure at that point he's got all this Egyptian regalia on with the, like, sweet guy liner, you know, all that kind of stuff. So they don't, they don't recognize Joseph, but Joseph spots them immediately. And the burning question in Joseph's heart is, have they changed? Have they changed or not, right? Or are they still the same brothers that threw me in a pit and sold me into slavery. So uh, Genesis 42 through 44 is this ridiculously complicated narrative where Joseph seeks to determine whether or not his brothers have actually changed. And he's drawing on all of the trickery that we talked about all summer that's in that whole family tree, right? Like it is just like masterful level trickery. It's like Game of Thrones level intrigue. Uh, sometime this week, give you a little bit of extra homework, you should definitely read chapters 42 through 44 and just see how complex and complicated Joseph's plots are. But the bottom line, because we're going to skip all that because we don't have time today, is that when you get to the end of it, when you get to the end of chapter 44, Joseph believes that his brothers have in fact changed. That they are no longer so concerned with their own well-being that they would sacrifice someone else for it. He comes to believe that they have in fact become different people. And so the question is, well, well uh, now what? Right? What, what does Joseph do when he's confronted with these brothers who wronged him so thoroughly now that he is in the position of power? God's dream came true. They are bowing down before him, begging to eat. And he has all of the power in this situation. He could order them enslaved, he could order them killed, or he could send them home with full sacks of grain. 
What is he going to do? Well, let's read together, beginning in verse 1. Genesis 45 tells us, Joseph could stand it no longer. There were many people in the room, and he said, I'm assuming they're like waving the palm branches and feeding him grapes, right? These people, right? And he says to his attendants, out, all of you. So he was alone with his brothers when he told them who he was. Then he broke down and wept. He wept so loudly the Egyptians could hear him, and word of it carried to Pharaoh's palace. I am Joseph, he said to his brothers. Is my father still alive? But his brother, I love it. His brothers were speechless. Can you, like, can you even imagine what they were thinking? Speechless. They were stunned to realize that Joseph was standing there in front of them. Please come closer, he said to them. So they came closer. And he said again, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into slavery in Egypt. Now, I want to stop there. We're going to keep going because there's a lot, a lot in this story. But Joseph introduces himself by saying, I am Joseph. And we tend to blow by that because it's like, yeah, it's an introduction, right? Except that in the Old Testament, whenever God introduces God's self, God says, I am. Or sometimes, I am the God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This I am formulation is a divine sort of introduction. So Joseph is mimicking the creator God, the God of his fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is a creation story. By saying, I am Joseph, and by doing what he does next, which is to forgive them instead of taking revenge. Joseph is sealing off the old world of unforgiveness, of imprisonment, of slavery, of death. And Joseph is creating a new world of possibility, one in which reconciliation is possible, one in which his family might be restored. It echoes the creation story in Genesis 1. The whole movement of Genesis 1 is where God takes chaos, death, and disorder and shapes it into a beautiful, ordered, peace-filled world. And so, too, we see Joseph doing this, taking this ugly, dysfunctional, nasty family dynamic and shaping it through his words, through his actions, into something new, something better, something hope-filled. Again, try to put yourself in the shoes of the brothers. What were they feeling? Fear? Anxiety? Shame? Through his speech, Joseph transforms all of that into love with an embrace. When he says, come closer, come closer, come in to me, come be with me. Now, this is a, this is a beautiful moment in Scripture. But I, I want to ask, how, how did he get there? Because if I'm being honest, when I struggle with forgiveness, I, there's a pretty big gap between where I find myself and where I see Joseph. So what's the gap? What's the path between those two places? Well, we get some hints of it, as we move forward. Unfortunately, no one interviewed Joseph about that specifically, so we don't kind of get a play-by-play -play from him, right? But we do have some hints of it if we continue in the text. So again, Joseph says, I am Joseph, your brother whom you sold into slavery in Egypt, but don't be upset and don't be angry with yourselves for selling me to this place. It was God who sent me here ahead of you to preserve your lives. This famine that has ravaged the land for two years will last five more years, and there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. 
God has sent me ahead of you to keep you and your families alive and to preserve many survivors. So it was God who sent me here and not you. And he is the one who made me an advisor to Pharaoh, the manager of his entire palace and the governor of all Egypt. With Joseph, Joseph's words, we can tell he's spent some time thinking about his predicament. And how could he not? He's had a lot of time in the pit, in Potiphar's house, in the prison, in Pharaoh's palace, as the manager of preserving the food. And through all of those times, Joseph has chosen to look for God's hand providentially preserving him. This is uh, some of what Debbie talked about last week, right? That in all of those circumstances, Joseph chose to see how is God at work here? How is God at work in the pit? How is God at work at Potiphar's house? How is God at work in the prison? How is God at work in Pharaoh's palace? How is God at work even as I am working to preserve these lives as the administrator of the grain? Joseph has chosen to see God working to fulfill God's dream. And now Joseph stands in front of his brothers and he has the power to save God's people. This family is in danger of starving to death. And that would end the legacy of Abraham. That would end the people of God. But because Joseph is where he is, because Joseph is who he is, he can act such that God's dream becomes a reality. That God's people are preserved just as God promised. And so Joseph steps back and looks at the whole big picture of everything that he has endured, of everything that he has suffered, and then he looks at his brothers. And he says, don't be mad at yourselves because it was God at work in this. And again, I want to I just circle back, and if you didn't get to hear Debbie's sermon last week, go back and listen to it, because she talked a lot about, so are we saying that God did all of this stuff, that, that Joseph's brothers and Potiphar's wife and all of these people were just pawns that God is making do all of these bad things so that you know, God can get what God wants? No. We're not saying that we don't have free will, that everything bad that we do is God did it, not me, or the devil made me do it. Or so. We're not saying that. And Joseph's not saying that. Joseph is choosing to see God's hand at work in both the painful circumstances and in the beautiful circumstances, in the pits and the prisons, and in the palace. Joseph is choosing to see that, again, above all else, God will not be thwarted. God's dream will come to fruition. God will do what God has promised. And that that is what enables Joseph, that reality, that recognition, that confession, is what enables Joseph to forgive. It's what frees him to free his brothers from the guilt and the shame that they have borne for all of these years. The insistence that God is at work, always bringing good for God's people. Now, anytime we talk about forgiveness, I feel like I get up here and say, say some stuff, and then it feels like, oh, so that's it. You just, you just forgive. And it's easy, and it's done. It sounds so easy, right? But it's not. 
It's really not. If you've ever been deeply wounded by someone, you know that forgiveness is something that you have to do over and over and over. It takes a lot of effort and a lot of work. And certainly, Philomena Lee's story bears that out. That journalist that helped Philomena find her son went on to write a book about it. It's called The Lost Child of Philomena Lee. And that story, Philomena's story, captivated the hearts of Hollywood, as great stories tend to do, and they turned it into a film a few years ago, just called Philomena, starring Dame Judi Dench as Philomena Lee. It's an incredible movie. If you haven't seen it, you absolutely have to. It's just beautiful. And, you know, the, uh, again, in, in real life, the nun who had been in charge of adopting Philomena's uh, son out was long dead. But in the movie, they figured it would make for better dramatic tension to leave her alive, right? So in the, in, the, in the climactic scene at the end of the film, this nun is still alive when Philomena makes it back to the convent, having learned that her son tried three different times to find her and was told three different times that they couldn't help him, right? And so the journalist, like, he, he is firing mad at all of these injustices that he's uncovered, and he rushes in and he confronts this nun and I don't know what I was expecting, uh, but I certainly wasn't expecting her to be so unapologetic and cruel, where she said, I'm not sorry that I did it. Those girls deserved it, these kinds of things. It's just, it's, it's ugly and it's heartbreaking. And he rages as I was raging. Like, I was like throwing popcorn at the TV and being like, and like, so I, like, I was with him. I was like, yeah, man, like, I'm with you. But then Philomena walks in. And she crosses over to this nun and she gets down in front of her. She says, Sister Hildegard, I forgive you. And then she stands up and she begins to leave. And the journalist rages and he says, just, just like that? And she turns on him and she says, not, not just like that. That's hard. That's hard for me. But I don't want to hate people. Philomena understood that if we cannot forgive, then we are doomed to live in a world that is defined by what they did to us. If we can't forgive, then they have the last word, and what they did to us has the last word. And so she chose to speak a new world into existence by saying, I forgive you. She opened up new possibilities. It turned out that her son requested that he be buried at the convent so that just in case his mom ever did try to find him, she could. Because of her choice to forgive, Philomena gets to find her son at last. Gets to say goodbye to him because she chose to forgive, because she chose not to be defined by what someone else had done to her. Friends, this is the power of forgiveness. If we don't forgive, it's like we live in the pit forever. We might be physically free. We might have gotten out and moved on, but our spirits will remain trapped there, trapped by what they did to us unable to grow, unable to move on, unable to be free. But when we choose to forgive, when we choose to see that even pits and prisons will not stop God's promises from coming true, 
when we choose to look for God's invisible hand at work in the worst circumstances. We choose to see that God is at every moment inviting us forward, inviting us to participate in the new world that God is bringing forth. Then we can forgive and we can be free. We're going to receive communion together this morning. Because the new world that our forgiveness creates is one that is grounded in the grace of God. It's grounded in Jesus' movement towards us to forgive. As Paul tells us, while we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. When we come to the table, we come to the table that Jesus shared with his disciples the night before he was killed. He spoke forgiveness to that table when he took a loaf of bread and broke it. He said, this is my body. It's broken for you. Take it and eat it. Later, he passed a cup of wine and he said, this is my blood. It's poured out for the forgiveness of sin. Take it and drink it. When we receive communion together, we participate in Jesus' death the death during which he prayed, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. When we come to the table, we come to receive God's grace, to participate in God's forgiveness so that we might go out from this place and be forgivers. We might carry the new world that God has created within us to everyone else that we meet. We cannot forgive until we have been forgiven. Our forgiveness is always grounded in God's forgiveness of us. So you don't have to be a member of Catalyst to receive communion with us today. If you're willing to receive God's forgiveness so that you can forgive, so that you can find the freedom that forgiveness brings us, then you're welcome to come to the table this morning. Uh, Before we approach the table, I'm going to lead us in a prayer of examine. I'm going to give you some space to, um, to reflect on what the Spirit is calling you to do. We're going to do that by looking back at the week that's brought you here and looking at the week that's ahead. And then after uh, we've done that, then I'm going to pray for us all together. And as you're welcome, you're ready, yeah, as you're ready, you're welcome to come to the table this morning. So uh, here's the first question I want you to consider. Think about the week that's brought you here. I want to ask, how have, how have I chosen forgiveness in this last week? Now, uh, when have I allowed what others have done to me to define my world?
Now think about the week that is ahead of us. When in the next week might I let what others have done to me define my world? When in the next week might I choose to stay in that pit or in that prison? And finally, uh, how can I choose to look for God at work in my circumstances this week? What does it look like to set aside some time to meditate on where God has been at work, even in the midst of those painful circumstances? Let's pray together. God, we approach your table this morning as a people who have been gathered and called by your Spirit to hear the story of your servant Joseph. What an incredible gift it is to know that you have forgiven us, that you have made peace with us. We ask this morning that you would give us grace that we might know the freedom that comes with forgiving, that we might know the freedom that comes uh, with knowing that we are forgiven and that you are working in all of our circumstances to bring good. As we receive these wafers and this juice this morning, we ask that they would become a spiritual food, that you would give us eyes to see how you are at work in every circumstance in our lives. And then as as we receive the grace of your presence, we might also have the grace to speak forgiveness, to create new worlds of possibility, not only for ourselves, but for those who have wronged us. Thank you for the story of your servant, Joseph. Thank you for how it shows us what forgiveness looks like. Thank you for the story of your daughter, Philomena Lee, and how her faithfulness to you also shows us what forgiveness looks like. May we be a people who forgive. May we be a people who, by our courageous choice to forgive, make your kingdom a little bit more visible here on earth as it is in heaven. That everyone we encounter might see you and might know you and might, might know that they are loved by you. We offer these prayers and we approach your table this morning in the name of your son, Jesus. Now, as you're going this morning, uh, this whole summer, we have been looking at uh, what it means when we are willing to leave our comfort zones and, and get into the place of messy faith uh, and, and encountering God there. And there's nothing that's messier than relationships. Uh, and that, that's why forgiveness is so essential if we are going to be a people uh, who are one people united together as one body. We have to be able to uh, be, be real with each other and be able to forgive each other. And so uh, as I'm sending you out today, I want to send you with this blessing. Uh, go knowing that you are forgiven by God and that that provides the foundation for you to be able to forgive. 
don't let what someone else did to you define who you are. Let what God has done for you define your reality. And may you go speaking forgiveness and creating new worlds of possibility for yourself, for everyone that you come into contact with. Go in the grace and peace of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We'll see you next week.